Welcome back everyone, welcome back Atomic Hobos, my name is Julie McDowell and this week we're going to talk about public information advice for tackling nuclear war but we're not looking at the famous one, Protect and Survive we're looking at its predecessor from 1963 which was called Civil Defence Handbook Number 10 with the full title Advising the Householder on Protection Against Nuclear Attack Now, that's not a very catchy title, it's a bit of a mouthful really, but then it could afford to have a big clunky, unwieldy name because it wasn't aimed at the general public as Protect and Survive was. This booklet was made for the Civil Defence Corps plus the Fire and Police Services. Its purpose, as the title suggests, was to advise the householder on what to do to defend and fortify the home if nuclear war ever came. So it was like an instruction manual for the civil defence workers and the rescue squads. It was to tell them what they should be telling their neighbourhood to do. It was how to answer people's anxious questions. It was showing them how to reassure people by giving them concrete instructions, you know, keep them busy rather than panicking. And just like the more famous Protect and Survive... This booklet was accompanied by a series of short films. They were designed to be shown to the civil defence workers and the police as training films, although had war threatened, they would have gone on TV. So we're going to take a look at the instructions in advising the householder, hear some clips from the films, and of course compare it to the far more famous Protect and Survive. But before we do that, we can forget the advice in the booklets. Some people would say all advice against nuclear war is useless anyway. So let's forget the advice just now and look at how frightening they were. Because um, the first thing people think of when they remember Protect and Survive is how scary it was. So let's consider the feel and tone and atmosphere of advising the householder on protection against nuclear attack. Is it scary? Well, for a start, check out its very ominous theme tune. Now, that tune is surely designed to unsettle you, or at least impress upon the viewer that this is some serious, scary business. Even though it sounds like some kind of Victorian funeral march, I still say that nothing is more chilling than that little electronic jingle from Protect and Survive. But even though this isn't a Protect and Survive podcast, I can't resist having a quick listen to it. If your blood doesn't run cold, I want to know what your superhuman secret is. (laughs) Terrifies me every single time. So, let's look at the actual instructions given in advising the householder. The basic advice is similar to the instructions in Protect and Survive. You know, those instructions which were so often ridiculed, such as advising you to designate a fallout room within your house and then build a core inside it, which would probably consist of some doors propped up against the wall. Uh, Just like Protect and Survive, you are instructed to stockpile food and water and, of course, gather first aid supplies. You advise, of course, not to leave the house until you get um, the all-clear fallout warning. 
So the basics are the same, although there are some differences with Protect and Survive. The first big difference, at least for me, because I'm a dog owner and can't imagine abandoning my baby boy, is that advising the householder specifically mentions pets. If you've heard my earlier podcast called The Fate of Pets, you'll know that the outlook in nuclear war was not good for Fidos and Fifis. But this booklet at least says, do not forget your pets. It also reminds you to take baby food in, you know, not just dog food, if you've got babies look after them. But here's a little clip about uh, remembering the pets. If there are babies or young children, remember their special food and don't forget the pets. So thank you for remembering the poor little dogs and cats of nuclear Britain, poor wee lambs. Um, Another major difference is that advising the householder assumes that we, or at least in this case the 1960s man of the house, is very skilled at DIY. Now we hear quite often these days that we're losing our DIY skills, uh, partly because in Britain at least so many young people have to rent uh, because they're not able to own their own home, it's simply too expensive now. So, of course, if you're living in rented accommodation, you can't, you know, renovate the place. You can't paint and decorate, reshape it. Also, our modern convenience culture means that you can easily go online anyway and find someone to do building or decorating work for you. Or, of course, you can shop in places like Ikea, where stuff is easy to assemble, with no need for hammers and drills and saws. But back in the 1960s... The man of the house would be expected to have a shed out in the garden, lots of tools in there, and so he'd be able to quickly whip up a fallout shelter for his family. The booklet reflects that um, that culture, making reference to stirrup pumps, bricks, and expects you to have the know-how to easily remove your window frames, board up the gaps, tightening the boards with wires or bolting them all together which is certainly beyond anything that I would be capable of. And there's also also the, the matter of how do you get them. Um, in this type of nuclear emergency, we can assume that anywhere that did sell all these tools, all these um, accessories, they'd be sold out, of course. They'd be panic buying. You couldn't just saunter down to your local DIY shop and stock up on sandbags and wires and bolts. You can assume the place would have been stripped bare. Nonetheless, uh, they assume that we're all brilliant at DIY and that we have all the supplies we need to build fallout shelters, take apart the windows, board them up, strap them together with wire and bolts. Here's a clip from one of the films. A second method you could use is to remove the window altogether. Fill the gap both on the inside and the outside with planks or boards. These rest on the windowsill and should be bolted or wired together. As you build them up, you should fill the space between the boards with tightly packed earth. Thirdly, after removing the window frame, you could fill the space with bricks. A double layer is possible. Both these methods are as effective as sandbagging and may be the most suitable for your house. Another big difference between the two uh, booklets, uh, and this one is quite sad, I suppose, is the references to helping friends and neighbours. Now, um, older people might tell us that things were nicer in the good old days. Everyone knew their neighbour's name. You could leave your door unlocked, etc. Well, the advice in the Advising the Householder booklet from 1963 uh, seems to mirror that because it mentions several times that you should look out for your neighbours and offer help. It says that um, if you live in a 
flimsy bungalow or even worse, um, a prefab. Uh, just let me say for overseas listeners, prefabs were tiny, flimsy little houses which were built in a hurry after the war when Britain had a dreadful housing shortage. They were only supposed to be temporary, but people often grew to love them. Even though they were quite squat, ugly things, they almost looked like little huts, um, people did have a fondness for them. And I can remember some still being in use in the south side of Glasgow up until the 1980s. So the booklet says if you live in one of these vulnerable buildings, do seek accommodation with neighbours. Now, how willing are your neighbours going to be to allow you to share their shelter space and to share their supplies, of course? Probably not very, not in the horrible panic of a, a nuclear emergency. It also asks householders to give shelter to anyone caught without protection. Now, Protect and Survive is far more realistic and practical in that it hardly mentions this at all. It's all about you and your family. It's about hunkering down with your family and, you know, hell mend anyone else. And if you listen to my previous episode called Shoot Thy Neighbour, you'll see that it was probably unrealistic to expect anyone to welcome others into their fallout rooms. People would surely be guarding their supplies and their precious space with fury and desperation. But this booklet was 1960s Britain, and maybe we were all a bit kinder then. Here's a clip um, asking you to look out for your neighbours. You should always give shelter to anyone who is caught in the open near your house when the warning sounds. They may have no other protection from the attack. An air attack is approaching this country now. So there we are, the assumption that people will shelter their friends or neighbours who happen to be visiting, that they'll extend shelter space to anyone nearby who lives in a vulnerable building, or that they'll offer shelter to strangers who are out in the street and happen to be caught in the open. The guidance later says, quote, When you have seen to your own household, help any neighbour in need. In contrast, um, the more realistic Protect and Survive has this to say in terms of neighbourliness. If there is time, help neighbours in need, but listen for the fallout warning and be ready to return to the fallout room. So there's one reference in the whole booklet of Protect and Survive to helping people, and it comes with the qualifier, if there is time, help neighbours in need. Whereas the 1960s, advising the householder has quite a few references to it, including offering shelter space to strangers who just happen to be caught in the open. The research done in America about having your own shelter and whether you would offer space to anyone else suggests very strongly that that would not happen. So Protect and Survive is certainly more realistic there in terms of helping others in need. It's also more realistic, uh, brutally so, by having advice on what to do with dead bodies. Advising the householder simply doesn't mention that horrible fact. It doesn't say what you should do if someone dies in your fallout room. But famously, Protect and Survive does with this very chilling advice. If anyone dies while you are kept in your fallout room, move the body to another room in the house. Label the body with name and address and cover it as tightly as possible in polythene, paper, sheets or blankets. Tie a second card to the covering. The radio will advise you what to do about taking the body away for burial. 
If, however, you have had a body in the house for more than five days, and if it is safe to go outside, then you should bury the body for the time being in a trench or cover it with earth and mark the spot of the burial. We all know that clip from Protect and Survive. It's probably the most famous. So why doesn't the earlier guidance advising the householder, why doesn't that uh, mention the removal of bodies? Maybe it was because this was the 60s. Britain was perhaps a more polite and dignified place. It also might have been left out because Britain, of course, still had a civil defence corps at the time. They were disbanded in 1968. And there is frequent reference to them in this guidance. Um, Indeed, as I said at the beginning, the booklet and films were originally made for them as training manuals so that they could then pass advice on to the general population. So this particularly nasty piece of advice about what to do if a member of your family dies in the shelter uh, might have been excluded because the Civil Defence Corps, working with local authorities, would have had their own instructions on corpse disposal. And there was, at least among the civil defence community, um, a full confidence that they would be on hand to help and to offer their expertise and their their services. That they'd be there after the bomb dropped, in the streets, knocking on doors, giving advice and saving lives. That was their purpose, of course. So they are mentioned throughout this booklet, as are the police, and we're told regularly to await instruction from a civil defence warden or a police officer. In fact, one of the films it shows a civil defence warden in his neat black uniform, you know, showing no sign of blast injury, not even any speck of dust on his lovely uniform. It shows a warden calmly recording fallout levels in neat handwriting with an elegant fountain pen. Now, references to those wardens are, of course, absent from Protect and Survive. They simply didn't exist by the by the 80s. Instead, you were just told then to listen to your radio for instruction. There was no chance of anyone coming to knock the door and offer help or carry off the slowly rotting bodies for you. And um, advising the householder offers more than just a civil defence warden doing his rounds of the streets, monitoring the radiation, etc. It also talks of evacuating you to a safe place. Protection Survive has nothing like that. You hunker down, you bury your own dead, and you hope for a crackle of something on the radio. Whereas, advising the householder offers the hope of the authorities coming to move you to a place of safety. One of the films, uh, I'll play you a clip here, shows a fleet of spruce double-decker buses pulling up in a lovely, neat street, ready to scoop everyone away to a place of safety. Where fallout is particularly heavy, people may have to be moved to a safer area. If this does become necessary, you will be told by radio, or by the wardens, or the police. Keep your suitcase to hand, and be ready to move, but on no account leave home before you are told. If you have to be moved, put on some warm clothes and take with you enough food to last for 24 hours. This food should be packed in airtight containers. So there's the hope of rescue, hope that the authorities in their uniforms will come and take you away somewhere safe. So we can see that advising the householder is 
far less stark and brutal and merciless than Protect and Survive. Again, maybe it's because British society in the 60s was still deferential. There was still the notion that if you listen to the authorities and follow those in charge, you'll be okay. We discussed that notion last week in the When the Wind Blows podcast and we see how that ended up for the for poor Jim and Hilda. So there is a flavour running through this campaign of leave it to us, be good chaps, do as you're told, things will be in hand. Of course, by the 80s, when Protect and Survive popped up, we had lost the Civil Defence Corps and I'd say lost a lot of deference and willingness to put our trust in the authorities. There was, of course, far more education about what thermonuclear war would actually mean. We'd also come to know about nuclear winter by that period. So I think there was a lot more hopelessness. And a lot of people thought or realised no one's going to be turning up in their neat uniform to take you away to safety. There is no safety. Oh, that tune is quite chilling. If you want to discuss uh, this podcast episode and uh, see some images from the archives about it, I've set up a new reward level on my Patreon. If you sign up to it, I send you an email invite to join our online forum, The Atomic Hobos, where we discuss the week's podcast in more depth. If that intrigues you, take a look at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo if you want to sign up for that or for any other level of nuclear rewards. And I want to thank everyone who's already signed up. Here comes a shout out for the podcast supporters. Big thanks to Jonathan Abelins, Sean Judge, Sarah Williams, Peter Mars, Douglas Greenshields, Colin McGee, Sean Milson, Brian Outlaw, Damian Ryan, Peter Lee, Wynne Grant, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling, Steve Sace, Kieran Taylor, Claire Brennan, John, sorry, Paul Jonathan Viner, and Gordy McNair. Thank you everyone who's signed up to the Patreon and helping this podcast keep going with your contribution. I'll also put some pictures on my Twitter account from this um, booklet from Advising the Householder. Um, There are lots of uh, illustrations in it which are done in a funny green and red ink. They almost look like 3D images that have gone wrong. So you can have a look at some pictures there on Twitter. My account is Julie A. McDowell. Or you can look at my nuclear Facebook page, which is Nuclear Britain. And my website is juliemcdowell.com. Plenty of juicy nuclear horror on all those sites for you. Um, In terms of me being an atomic hobo, I'm doing some more travelling shortly. I'm going to Edinburgh to look at the archives of NHS Lothian, where they've got some civil defence files, including one with the tantalising title Civil Defence Incineration. So I'm dying to nosy around in that one. It sounds gruesome. Those who've signed up to my Patreon will get nuclear postcards from my atomic hobo journeys, research trips, etc. So look out for a postcard from beautiful old Edinburgh with some details about incineration on the back. I'll be sure to send those postcards off from Edinburgh after I visited the archive. So I'll put a wee snippet on that of what I found in that incineration file. So that's us for this week. Thank you again for listening. Those who've joined the Atomic Hobos forum, uh, log on now and let's get our hands dirty with some more nuclear horror. Otherwise, I'll be back next week with another podcast. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>